Well, good morning and welcome. We are starting off a new series uh, this morning, um, and we're going to be looking at this concept of the Messiah. The series is called Path of the Messiah, and this morning the subtitle is Ancient of Days. One of the things I find very interesting about our Bible is, is that, and we talk about this a lot at Uptown Community Church, and just to remind you that there is a cultural context to scriptures. And so when people come to me and see the Old Testament and going, wow, God's really angry. There's a lot of bloodshed. I'm like, okay, before you take your North American sanitized life and apply to a Middle Eastern ancient culture, please understand there is a context here, right? And so there has to be that part of it. One of the things about Easter that always amazes me is that there is this nexus point, this meeting point of all these different themes that are being fulfilled at Easter time. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Um, the video you saw there was from a, a YouTube channel. Uh, it's called uh, One for Israel. It's fantastic. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at testimonies of people who are uh, Jewish but have uh, recognized Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah. When you open up Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, now remember, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, right? Our covenant, right? The book, the New Testament, actually means New Covenant, Right? So obviously to someone who is Jewish, a book that says the new covenant, they're like, well, what's, what supersedes our covenant? The first thing that we learn about Jesus, this, this Messiah, is that he is the Messiah. Right? He is the Christ, he is the Messiah. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, right? This is the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? Like, between the book of Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years where God has not spoken to the people through the prophets. And then all of a sudden, one day, right, we know the Christmas story that God has now chosen this time, this place, for his Messiah to enter into the world. And the first thing that you learn in your Bible is that Jesus, whatever else you think about him, he is at first and foremost, he is the Messiah. Now, I use that term, Messiah, and for us as Gentiles, we look at that, we read that like, oh, the Messiah. But I don't know if we truly understand what is actually happening here. Last year, I, uh, I looked at the Passover, the Seder, and I looked at the elements of it and how it was uh, about um, Jesus and, and how it kind of, he fulfilled everything. This year, what I want to take a look at is as we look at Easter once again, there is this undercurrent of something called messianic expectation that's happening in the background that we need to understand to really understand Easter. Because it's like I said to you before, Easter is this meeting point of all these different ideas that have been worked together in the Old Testament through the prophets and the kings. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the New Testament and, and when Jesus entered the world is Jesus did not enter into, into the world in a vacuum. Rather, he entered into Jewish history at one of the most critical time periods. Israel had been through a bitter exile in Babylon, nearly destroyed by the Greeks, both physically and culturally, and now ruled by the Roman Empire. Although the Romans allowed for religious expression, the religious leaders were given the responsibility of making sure religious freedom did not threaten Roman control of Israel. So one of the things you understand is that we talk about the Romans in the time of Christ, but what you realize, you realize is that there is this group of people called the Israelites who have fought so hard for this thing they call the promised land. And we know this in the Old Testament. Well, now they are living in an occupied country. The Romans are there. And the Romans had this great idea. It's a Latin term called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the Roman peace was this. Keep your culture, keep your religion, but everything is ours. 
right? And they knew well enough to say, okay, you want to have your God? Keep your God. But we're going to give you another 200 gods as well too, right? So keep your God. We're going to add him to the pantheon of our gods. We're going to add her to the pantheon of our gods. And so when Jesus sets foot down on this planet, when he did, the Israelites were under this burden of the Roman Empire. Now, we're not going to talk too much about the New Testament this week. So next week, we're going to talk about Jesus, the Messiah. But this week, what I want to do is I need to set the table. And I need to set the table about the ancient expectations about the Messiah. I need to go back into history and to show you where this concept of, of the Messiah comes from. And you might be surprised to know that at the very first, the third chapter of the Bible, the Messiah was promised. And I'm going to kind of unpack that for you. So today, this morning, I want to unpack the, uh, the idea of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to take a look at how Jesus and a lot of the conflict he had uh, between, the, uh, between the religious leaders was around this concept of the Messiah. And of course, we'll get to Good Friday and uh, Easter Sunday as well, too. Um, when you study uh, Judaism, what you realize is one of the core beliefs of Judaism is about the Messiah. Um, this is from a website, Judaism 101. It just kind of gives us the, the core beliefs. It says this, Belief in the eventual coming of the Moshiach, the Messiah, is a basic and fundamental part of traditional Judaism. It is part of Rebam's 13 principles of faith, the minimum requirements of, a Jew, of Jewish belief. In the Shemona Ersai prayer, recited three times daily, we pray for all the elements of the coming of the Moshiach. In gathering of the exiles, restoration of the religious courts, justice, an end of wickedness, sin, and heresy, reward to the righteous, rebuilding of Jerusalem, restoration of the line of King David, and a restoration of the temple service. This is what the Messiah was to, to the ancient Hebrews. And you kind of read that and going, you kind of see why maybe Jesus didn't really get along very well with them. Because their expectation of what the Messiah was. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the Messiah is... In the Old Testament, this theme pops up, and we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at it uh, briefly, as, as much as I can ever look at anything briefly. Uh, but we're going to look at it, and we're going to just kind of shine a light on it. The idea of the Messiah is actually something I'm thinking about, right, is something that we have today. Every time we see a political change or every time something happens, we take our hopes and we place them upon a person. This person, once they're in power, they will change everything. They will speak with my voice. They will do all things well, and we're always disappointed. We're always disappointed. And it doesn't matter if it's in the political realm, if it's in the financial realm, whether it's a celebrity, even a Christian, another, a celebrity Christian pastor, right? We are always disappointed by people because we place these expectations of a person coming to solve our problems. It's kind of ingrained within us, right? This is what the Jewish people believed about the Messiah, that when he would come, he would change everything. He would, he would transform everything. And it was their hope, their absolute hope, for this Messiah to come to relieve them of the Roman occupation. One of the reasons why um, the Messiah was so important is that he was going to usher in a new political realm for them, so they thought. And when you, we look in the Old Testament, we look at some of the scriptures, you kind of see why, actually. You kind of see why they believe that, because of what was said about the Messiah. When we talk about messianic expectations, um, there's a couple of elements about the Messiah and what we accomplish. Then the Moshiach will bring about the political and spiritual redemption of the Jewish people by bringing all Jews outside of Israel back to Israel, uh, back, outside of Israel back to Israel. So one of the things that the Messiah would do, he would restore Jerusalem. Right? This little city that is still in a lot of controversy today. It's interesting to me how in ancient times, right, this was the, 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 the touch point. 
Nothing's changed, really. It's still the touch point today. This is still sacred to the Jewish people. He will establish a Torah government in Israel that will be the center of all world government, both for Jews and Gentiles. He will rebuild the temple and reestablish temple worship. So there's three kind of ideas of the Messiah, three threads that the Messiah would bring. And so when the Jews were looking for this Messiah, this Savior, this uh, being who would come to them, he would transform everything. There were three things that they were expecting him to kind of fall in line with. The Messiah and the Passover are actually uniquely connected. It's interesting that in the Gospels, we hear about the word Messiah a lot. But when we get now to the part of the, uh, of the church where Gentiles are a part of it, this idea of the Messiah complex just dies out completely. And the reason it dies out completely is because the early church understood the Messiah had now come. It was Yeshua, right? And so because they saw this, this, this Messiah stream dies out towards the end of uh, the book of Acts. Because now Gentiles were a part of this Christian uh, faith. Remember, the first few chapters of the book of Acts, Christianity is predominantly a Jewish faith. Right? They're still going to the synagogue, right? Remember that, that story of Peter going to, the, going to the temple for prayer at three in the afternoon? They're still keeping with synagogue rules. They're still keeping with that. It's not till they get to Acts chapter 15, and we looked at this already, at the Council of Jerusalem, where James, the little brother of Jesus, stands up and said, okay, Gentiles, welcome to Christianity. We're not going to load upon you all the rules that we live under, but here's some expectations we have of you. And in those four things that James gives them, he says, these are actually how you stay pure spiritually amongst an impure world. That's why we as Gentiles were never expected to bring animals to be sacrificed or to dress in a certain way to uh, have your head coverings. And I don't mean by toupees for some guys, you know, maybe missing your hair and all that. I just mean like this idea of covering your heads in the Jewish fashion. That wasn't a part of us. Why? Because in Acts 15, James says, by the way, Gentiles, this is how you understand under uh, Judaism for yourself because Jesus was Jewish and he was for the Jewish people but now we're giving him to you as well and so we have this transformation so the Messiah and the Passover are uniquely connected so when we talk about Easter right last year we looked at the Passover we saw how Jesus fulfilled the Passover the Lamb of God and that's online and you can go and listen to that but today we're going to start talking about this Messiah complex Messiah complex this Messiah concept Messiah complex is a whole other sermon series, and we'll get to that one as well. <laughs> Understanding the concept of the Messiah also helps us to understand Jesus, his mission, and sacrifice. Messiah complex, come on. How, how much of a Freudian slip is that one? All right. <laughs> Let's talk about the messianic origins. I've already hinted to you that Messiah was talked about in the book of Genesis. I'm going to show you something here. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the fall. Right? So Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is parallel accounts of the creation story. And remember we looked at back at the EBF series, uh, we said to you that the Genesis chapter 1 and 2 isn't a scientific understanding of creation. It is a narrative. The one part is, a, is kind of an orderly account, and the second part is more of a, of a narrative of, 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 of humanity, of God's spirit being put in us. Now we get to Genesis 3. We don't know how much time has passed between Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3. But in this moment now, everything changes for humanity. We know the story, right, where the serpent comes and has a conversation with Adam and Eve, right? And that serpent says, uh, you know, eat the fruit, right? Everyone has this idea of an apple. We don't know what it was. It was a fruit, right? It was some sort of fruit. I think it would be a pineapple. It would be harder to get into, right? So maybe, you know, it could have been that, right? But we don't know what kind of fruit it was. It was just a fruit. So the serpent says to Adam and Eve, eat this fruit. Now remember, the entire law 
was one rule. Wouldn't that be nice? One rule, don't eat the fruit, right? Don't eat the fruit. That's all I got to do, don't eat the fruit, right? But for some reason, Adam and Eve had this temptation to eat the fruit, and they did. And of course, God shows up and says, okay, let me explain to you what you have just done. Now, please hear me very clearly. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, the entire understanding of humanity can be seen in those three chapters. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what did God want? He wanted to live in harmony with us. But what did he want for us? He wanted us to live in harmony with creation. Right? So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see this beautiful picture of what God intended. I was speaking to someone about, um, about the world today, and he said to me, you know, one of the reasons why he doesn't, he's not a Christian or doesn't believe in God is how, much, how can there be so many pain, how much pain in the world? He said to me, well, how, how can you believe in God who's all-powerful that allows suffering? And that's a great question. Luckily, I've had that conversation multiple times over the years, and so I said, let me unpack that for you. I said, when we see this world and we see how fallen it is, how broken it is, that actually tells us something. It tells us that God intended something different. Every time I see violence, every time I see oppression, whenever I see the rich taking advantage of the poor, whenever I see this type of thing, I go, that's sin, right? And that's why I say the world's problems really come down to spiritual problems and, and, and the problems of the spirit. And so we had this great conversation. And again, I don't know if I utterly convinced him, but at least I had a response to his, 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 how he looked at it, right? So when we look at this idea of the Messiah, in Genesis 3, everything changes. Now, let me show you something here. Genesis 3, 14. Now, I have to put this in context, right? So the Lord God said to the serpent. So the next verse is God cursing the serpent. Now, the serpent isn't an actual serpent. It is the devil, right? Now, here's something else that's going to mess with your mind a little bit. Between Genesis chapter 1 and 2, between chapter 2 and 3, there's a war in heaven. And the book of Revelation talks about it. Genesis doesn't talk about it. And in that war, the Bible tells us that Satan and his angels are thrown to the earth. So that's the subtext of Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were with God on their own. But Satan in heaven goes, I can be equal with God. And then they have a war, and Michael, the archangel, and that's a whole other conversation, he, he leads the, the armies of, the, of heaven against the armies of the a devil, and they win, and they hurl the devil to earth. So now that's where the serpent comes into, because someone said to me, where does the serpent show up? Did God create him? Yes and no. He didn't create the serpent, but what he did is create free will by which they can choose to be either in worship of God or not. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this, you have to have context. We have to teach the Bible with context so that we don't just make assumptions. I, I, I tend to over-explain because I know that there are people sitting here who don't have a lot of church background or any church background. And we make these statements. I want to make sure you understand the context of them because it's important. Now look, look what, the devil, look what uh, God says to the devil in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the New King, King James Version says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Stop right there. What is God saying to the serpent, the devil? He's saying from this point on, you will have this battle between her seed, and, and your seed. Now, let me unpack what that means here because this is actually very important to understand in the messianic understanding. The word seed here is, is, is a word that literally means this idea of offspring, 
right? The noun zira, seed, never occurs in the plural in the Old Testament. Accordingly, the singular term can be used collectively. That is, the singular form is used for both an individual seed and a group of seeds. In the case of humans, it can refer to a single descendant or multiple descendants. The curse is justice and the promise of redemption. So in this moment, God says something to the serpent. And if you read the story too quickly, you miss it. What he's saying is, from this point on, the the serpent's seed and the woman's seed are going to be in a battle. There's going to be this tension. There's going to be this fight between the two. Now, let me explain something here to you. The two seeds are are the two people on this planet, those who work with God and those who rebel against. This is the work of the Messiah. The idea of the Messiah has its foundation in the prophet, priest, and king. God calls the person to rally the nation. So the Messiah's job is is to rally the the seed of God to to battle against the seed of the enemy. This is why Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Because the writer is saying, now look at the two seeds going at it. Right? So Cain and Abel, one pleased God, one rebelled against God. And again, I've... We can unpack that in the, uh, at a later date, or you can come and ask questions about that. But that's basically the two seeds, right? And so how do we know the two seeds? One will work with God, submit to God, and say, you are God, and I am not. The other seed says, I am God, and I get to, I get to say however I want to live. I will be as I think this world should be. And those two spirits, those two ideas are in, are in constant battle. And so the curse is both uh, a promise, because... The Bible says, and God says to the serpent, he will crush your head. Not they. If he meant to use a plural, he could have used a plural. But he said, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, it's an interesting image, and I just want to let you just, I was, I was thinking about this. How do you crush something's head and strike its heel? Right? Because if it strikes your heel, how do you shake it off and try to crush its head? Well, I think the image that is given to us is, that the serpent's head, as, as the person steps down on it, the fangs come out. And as it's crushing its head, it is also bitten. Because you can't strike someone's heel and crush their head at the same time unless you wrap, even if you wrap the, its body around your foot, you're still going to miss the head. And so this idea of duality, that in the moment of the crushing, there will be suffering. And that's key to the understanding of the Messiah. Because as, as the prophets talk about the Messiah... He is this apocalyptic figure, but he's also a figure that will endure a great deal of suffering. And that's a part and parcel to how they understood the Messiah. Now, I want to show you something here, and I'm, I'm just going to put these up here, and I'm going to explain them. If you look at the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, one of the things that's very interesting is, is when you look at the prophecies about the Messiah, they tend to center around the Passover, and so when you take a look here, and the reason I put the dates on there is because you need to understand, a thousand years before Jesus was born, these things were said. Now, from a scientific perspective, you can say, you know, redactionism. Redactionism is, I can go back and I can, I know what the future is, I, I know what the present is, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pretend that I'm connecting with it, right? And so what we see here is that there are multiple prophecies about this character, this person called the Messiah, and this person is, so, so for example, Psalm 41.9, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me, right? And so I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, right? Time and time again, throughout the Old Testament, we see 
scripture after scripture that would prophesy what would happen to the Messiah hundreds and thousands of years before he showed up. Now, the reason this is important is because if you tried to kind of fulfill all of these, let me show you a little bit of a mathematical formulation here. Because it's important to understand what Jesus did, what he accomplished was almost unheard of. So take a look at this here. One person fulfilling eight prophecies, one person fulfilling eight. So you get to pick eight. The probabilities of that is, is one in that number. I don't even know what that is, right? Trillion upon trillion. Like, I, I, I don't know, right? Now, let me show you this here. 100 quadrillion. 100 quadrillion. Uh, I, I can't tell, so I'm going to say, sure, why not? Right? One person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the power of 157. That means one with, with 157 zeros behind it. That's eight, okay? One person fulfilling that. Now, let me show you. Let me give you context here about how difficult this is, right? So if you're struck by lightning, you have a one in 700,000 chance of being struck by lightning, okay? So the odds are pretty good for you to get struck by lightning, right? I actually, I looked at it, I'm like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. I could actually die out there, right? So I'm going I'm to take that. How about this one? <laughs> you're not like this one because this one actually came out. Becoming president, you have one to 10 to the power of seven or one in 10 million, one in 10 million chances. And we've seen them and we've seen that happen, right? So I'm feeling kind of unsafe. I gotta be honest with you, all these kind of probabilities here, right? How about this one? A meteorite landing on your house. It's 1.8 to the power of, uh, of 10 to the 14, right? Which is, again, that number. Now, let me show you something here. How probable is it for one person to fulfill 300 prophecies? It's this number, okay? 1.5 times 10 to the power of 239. Just so you know, with probabilities, they say this. Anything past 150 is impossible. You're basically saying it's impossible, right? It's impossible for that to actually happen, right? And I actually... I started typing on my keyboard. I'm like, I got bored of this. I'm like, I'm just going to let you imagine all those zeros because I thought it would be kind of cool for you to see it. But the point is this. Whoever Jesus is, whatever the Messiah is, the probability of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies written about him and his life, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. Yeah, my finger got hurt when I was trying to do it, right? So um, it's almost impossible. Now, here's something interesting too. The Passover meal. Right? Jesus came at Passover time. Well, sorry, he didn't come at Passover time. The fulfillment happened at Passover time. Now, what is so interesting about the Passover meal is that it has layers upon layers that point back to the Messiah. So, for example, when you look at the Passover meal, um, this is actually from uh, the beginning. The ha- uh, it's called the Hagda, which is the kind of the opening statement you make about the Passover meal. It says this. At this time, when we recount the redemption of the Jews from Egypt in the Haggadah, we will also express our hope for the future redemption with the coming of the Messiah. The tradition is that the lives of the prophet will be the one to announce the coming of Messiah. In fact, there's a tradition that the Messiah will come in the month which Passover occurs, Nisan. Nisan is the beginning of, that's, their, that's the Jewish New Year, which is around March for us, in case you're wondering, right? On the, on the Jewish calendar, the cup is Elijah's cup. To express our hope that our guest will be Elijah himself coming to inform us of Messiah's coming and the rebuilding of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So there's a part of the Passover meal where a child will open the door to see if Elijah the prophet has come to announce the Messiah. The cup of Elijah. By the way, Jesus picks up a cup at the, at the Passover meal. What does he say? This is my cup. What cup does he grab? Elijah's cup. 
He's announcing to these Jewish Hebrew boys, these men, this is my cup. And at that moment, he says something to them that if they haven't figured out by now, this is my cup. This is Elijah's cup. This is the cup of the Messiah. Guess who I am? He announces it to them, right? So the Passover meal is woven with this idea of the concept of the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah itself, and I need to kind of unpack this. We'll look a little bit more uh, next week about this. But the word Messiah is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. In the Greek, this Hebrew word is literally translated as Christos, from which we get the English word Christ. So Christ actually means Messiah or anointed one. So when you say Jesus Christ, that's not his name. His name would have been Jesus ben Joseph, right? You always showed your name by your father, right? So Jesus ben Joseph would have been his name. That's how he would have been identified or Jesus of Nazareth. We have taken Jesus Christ and we think that's his name. Like that's his last name. It's not his name. It's a title. It means Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah. So every time we say it, we don't realize what we're saying. We are drawing from a messianic understanding of Jesus. But as Gentiles, we've missed this layer of understanding of who Jesus was in the context of the Old Testament. Now, anointing, if I say to you what anointing is, we had an anointing service here a few weeks back. That's how we roll here at UCC, because we believe the Bible says to anoint with oil to pray and, and to gather together, and we, we do that. In the Old Testament, there were three levels of government for the Hebrews, prophet, priest, and king. Now, priests represented the Levitical side, the, the, the priest side, right? The religious part. The king was a political. The priest, I mean, sorry, not the priest, the prophet was the person that was outside of both of those realms, And got to say whatever they want. They spoke into the kings and the Levitical system to say, this is how you've missed God's will for you. So every time a prophet would show up, they are outside of structure. And it was God's way of of balancing the political and the religious. So a prophet was also anointed. So a priest was anointed with oil to set them aside for God's use. A king was anointed with oil to set them aside for use. A prophet was anointed by the spirit or by oil for God's use. Now watch this. When we look at the Messiah, when we look at how he was, right? The Bible tells us that the Messiah would be anointed as a prophet. He would be anointed as a prophet to the Hebrews, which is important. Because a prophet was not only just a person, it wasn't just a label, it was a function. And the function was... The prophet's main function was to remind Israel about God and his law and to tell them how they're sinning. See, we think of prophecy as foretelling the future. That's an infantile way of looking at it. Because to the Jews, they saw the prophet as a person would come and say, stop worshiping these idols, stop doing this, stop uh, um, removing justice from the widows and the orphans. One of the ways we get this idea of social justice and, and getting out for the poor is the prophets. The prophets would say to the people, Stop with your religious activities and show true justice. The widows and orphans, right? So the prophet was this person outside of that. But whoever the Messiah was, he would be a prophet. But not only would he be a prophet, he would also be a priest. In Psalm 110, we see that the, that the Messiah would be this individual who would hold this, this office as a priest. Now, in history, there have been a couple of prophets who were from the Levitical line. So in the Hebrew culture, in the context, this is not unheard of, right? What is unheard of is this next one, is king. 
Now, I want to explain something to you. And again, remember I said to you, I'm setting the table for next week because we need to make sure we understand all this because next week I'm going to take some of these threads and I'm going to show you how Jesus now fulfills them but also goes deeper in them. Whoever this Messiah was going to be, he was also going to be king. Now, this is unheard of because you know why? A Levite... Was from a Levi- the Levite was from the Levite tribe. The Levitical tribe was from the Levites, right? There are 12 tribes of Israel. All the priests came from the Levite tribe. And matter of fact, all the high priests came from the Aaron line, the Aaronic line, they call it, right? They come from the Levites. The kings came from the tribe of Judah. So a Levite could never be a king. And this was God's way of, count- uh, of keeping a balance between the two powers, Right? The Levites were to remind the king of the religious law, but the king was supposed to serve and protect Israel. But God said these two people should never be combined because it's too much power for one person. Right? In our political system, we try to have those counterbalances for any uh, political leader saying, okay, we can't give them too much power or else. Well, God had that idea as well in the Old Testament. Okay, Levites, high priest, you're from the tribe of Levite. Kings, you're from the tribe of Judah. Now look at this, okay? The Messiah was going to take the three most important positions and he was going to combine them. He was going to be a prophet, priest, and king. This is what made the Messiah so unique and so beyond the comprehension of the Hebrews. That for the first time in all of history, in all of time and space, one person would occupy all three roles. He would have the authority of a king. He would have the understanding of a Levite. And he would speak as a prophet to the people to remind them of sin. We as Gentiles look at Jesus and say, yeah, of course. But to the Jewish people, when they looked at Jesus, like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure if this person can do it. This is the Messiah. This is how we understand the Messiah. This is how we understand the king. But there's also another image of Messiah, and I want to close with this. In Daniel chapter 7, the book of Daniel is, it's a very interesting book. I will confess to you, uh, if, if any pastor is really honest about the book of Daniel, we only understand half of it. The other half is a little bit kind of clouded to us. We can make assumptions, we can make guesses, but if in, uh, if in all humility we have to say, this a language, this imagery, this time frame, the 70 weeks, we're not quite sure how to kind of interpret this. And that's a humble way of saying it because we have to be honest with that. Daniel, the, the prophet Daniel gets a glimpse of the Messiah, right? I've told you about the prophet. I've told you about the priest. I've told you about the king and, and how this was a theme, right? Now look at Daniel's image of the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, this is, what, this is how Daniel sees the Messiah. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wood. wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This is also the Messiah, this apocalyptic figure that was transcendent of time, was transcendent in space. And when Daniel saw the Messiah, this is what he saw. So do you understand why the Messiah, whoever he was, was so important and so vital for the Jewish people? 
But I will say this to you as well. As we come to the Easter season, the Messiah was the only person who could fulfill what they needed to fulfill for the people. This is a concept that we as Gentiles look at and go, hmm. but for the Jewish people, they are astounded by this. There is a revival taking place right now amongst Messi- um, Jewish people, who are what we would call Messianic Jews, people who are now acknowledging Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah. And we're going to see videos of, of, of testimonies of people. Some of them are subtitled uh, because they're speaking in Hebrew. But what's so interesting to me is this. Jesus was, Jesus is our Savior. He is our Lord. He's the Son of God. But he's also very Jewish. He's the Messiah. He is, he is for all people. He would gather all people to him. And he would represent for them something that would transcend everything. I loved uh, Lawrence uh, reading a scripture this morning from Revelation. She didn't know what I was teaching on. And of course, God kind of, uh, kind of nailed it in regards to that. Right? But you see this person, this, this, this Messiah individual that was so beyond the understanding of the people. All their hopes, all their desires, all their understanding was pinned upon the Messiah. And as we come to Easter... We will meet the Messiah. We will understand. We will sit at his feet. And we'll see why Jesus, only Jesus, through time and space, could fulfill this role, this position. And why he becomes our savior. How he becomes our anointed one, even today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Messiah. And for many of us, that is a foreign concept. who the Messiah is and and, and what function he has. But Lord Jesus, you were the Messiah. And the first thing that we learn in the New Testament is that you were the Messiah. I pray that over these next several weeks as we look at this concept, as we unpack this hope, that we would understand how important it is to understand this concept to fully understand Easter. Jesus, I am astounded at how much you suffered for us. How much you humbled yourself for us. And how you willingly walked to the cross for us to be the final sacrifice, to be God's lamb so that sin and death would pass over us and that we would find true relationship, true reconciliation and atonement within who you are. Lord, I know that Easter comes every year and sometimes we don't treat it seriously enough. But it is a reminder of your sacrifice. It is a reminder of hope. It is a reminder of redemption. It is a reminder that though we sin and though we feel far from you, Easter, Passover, Messiah, it was used to bring friendship between humanity and God, healing in that brokenness. And I pray that we would apply that healing to our lives daily. God, send us with this week. Send us with your blessing. And I thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us. And that, God, I thank you that in the garden that we fell, you enacted a plan to redeem all of humanity. That it wasn't your, it wasn't, it wasn't your heart to let anybody fall away or step out of your grasp. But instead, you called all of us to a right relationship with you to be redeemed to be 
reconciled, and all these other great words we use to basically say to be a friend of God. Thank you, Lord, for Easter, and thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.